talk a little bit about the preparation of kosher meat. Now, some of you may have experienced this. Um, I'm a little bit too young to experience it, although I did see it a few times. Um, that back in the day, many, many years ago, this is going back at least 50, 60 years ago, um, you used to go to the butcher before they had meat in the, um, before we had big box grocery stores, and uh, before they had meat sections in the grocery stores, there, were once, there was once a thing called butcher stores. They don't exist anymore. There was once a thing, there was fish stores and butcher stores and bakeries. Now you just go to Ralph's and you get everything. So back then, so they used to go to the butcher store, and used to actually, the butcher store used to have big cuts of meat, and they used to cut a piece of meat for you, and then you used to have to take it home and prepare it yourself. And our grandmothers, this is going back 67, depending on the place, 60, 70 years even, our grandmothers used to take it home and they used to put it, they used to have a big sink, they used to soak it in, or a big bowl, and they used to actually kosher the meat themselves. Did anyone experience that? Did anyone see their grandparents doing it? No? Yeah. So... My grandmother, my mother saw how her, I mean, when she was a kid, how her parents did. This is going back 70 years, so, I mean, it's going back quite, quite a while. Today, we don't really experience how our meat is prepared. And in my view, it's a little bit of a problem, in general, that we don't see the source of our food. Um, I was just, we, we made, I, I think I mentioned by our Seder, our kids made our, uh, my kids made wine with my grandfather this year. And um, normally you'd buy a bottle of wine. You don't know how the wine is produced. You don't see where it comes from. Our ancestors actually saw the source of their food. And uh, so today we don't experience it for good or for bad. We don't experience where our food comes from. Um, it takes this kind of a point with, in all, in my, with my kids where one day the kid get, comes to the realization that the chicken is the same chicken as the chicken, right? And they like get that realization and put it together and they never realized. Um, but our grandparents who grew up with chickens living in their kitchen that used to eat the crumbs on the floor, right? that's the way they used to live because you couldn't put them outside or the cats would attack them, right? So they were always indoors, the chickens. Um, so... Um, they used to, and then Friday they used to take a chicken or whatever it was, they would slaughter a chicken. They would have the chicken slaughtered, and every town there was a shochet, a ritual slaughterer. And the shochet actually was the most prestige, the second most prestigious job in the town, in the shtetl, after the rabbi. My great-grandfather came from a family of shochtim. They had that position in the same town in Poland for generations. They were the shochtim of the town. And um, the shochet... Um, would they would would sit in the synagogue courtyard and they would the, they would bring the chicken to the shochet and the shochet they would pay him a little bit and the shochet would check their chicken for them right there and then they would have to then they would have to go through the whole process themselves so today we don't really experience the process it's still good to know how it's done so the first stage in preparing whether it's meat or fowl. Um, fish don't go through this preparation process at all. Fish have no, according to Torah, if it's a kosher fish, there's no preparation process whatsoever. You just kill it and eat it. Um, but for meat or fowl, there is a complex preparation process. The first stage is what we call in Hebrew shechita, slaughtering. Um, or uh, it's translated slaughtering, but it means killing with a, with a sharp knife. Why do we have to practice shechita? 
Because the Torah tells us to do so. We don't really have a reason for it. However, this is very important, and um, this is part of our tradition for thousands of years. The Talmud mentions this. We believe that shechita is the most painless way to kill an animal. Shechita, slaughtering the animal, is the most painless way to kill an animal. It's not pretty, and there's organizations that are anti-shechita, and these organizations, it's important to know, because they just outlawed shechita, I think, in um, Sweden recently, and a number of other European countries. Um, these organizations that outlaw shechita and circumcision, they usually go together, are, they claim to be pro-animal rights and pro um, Babies' rights, um, in reality, they, were, they began in the 1920s, 1930s um, as pro-Nazi organizations. Almost always they have anti-Semitic um, connections. And these people are so obsessed with shechita and circumcision, not because of their concern for animals, but more often than not, it's over their concern, uh, over their dislike for Jews. It's very important to remember that. Thankfully... In this country, it's all constitutionally protected. Uh, recently, a couple cities tried to pass um, votes um, against shechita or against circumcision in California, um, which wouldn't have been effective because it's unconstitutional, but, um, but still it would be, I mean, if most people in any given city in California would vote for an anti-Semitic law, it would be very harmful to the Jewish people. And thankfully, our state legislature, I think it was a couple years ago, passed a law outlawing any, um, any vote, any um, municipal vote that's unconstitutional. So if the vote would be unconstitutional, it's illegal, and so they can't even pass those votes. Any, they can't even put those votes on the ballot anymore, thankfully, in this state. So... What makes it unconstitutional? It's, pre- it's protected religion. religion. Okay. <clears throat> so, so um, sh- what does shechita require? So shechita requires cutting the trachea, the um, windpipe, and the esophagus, the food pipe, along with um, the carotid arteries and jugular veins, which are the main veins that pass blood um, from the body to the head, go back and forth. And so they're all very close to each other. And shechita, with a very quick, smooth slit, it cuts everything. Immediately, as soon as the brain, the brain's going to stop getting blood, it stops getting oxygen. Immediately, it's painless because it's a very, very smooth cut. So there's no pain whatsoever. It cuts through the nerves. There's no, uh, it, uh, it cuts through the veins. Immediately, the brain dies within instantly. Because it loses all oxygen immediately. The um, the uh, um, and, and so this is the way that that's the way shechita is always done. The most common way to slaughter today for those that don't practice shechita is with a is with a stun stunning it with an electric shock. Um, now there's some evidence that electric shocks may be more painful than shechita. Um, it's prettier because there's no blood. But as far as the animal, we don't, there's no way to ask the animal afterwards what it felt. But um, there's ways they measure brain movement. And there's some evidence that shechita is actually less painful. There's also been some health concerns um, with the electric shock because it kind of freezes everything where it is. 
um, <laughs> as opposed to draining everything out. And so there, there's also been some health concerns um, with it as well. And um, today, even after electric shock, they have to do they have to immediately drain the blood legally, um, but they don't do as good of a job with, once there was an electric shock as with a slaughter. So, um, and that's a big problem in general. Even if you would stun the animal, there are certain places where they require, certain countries where they require stunning after shechita. And even then, if you stun the animal before you do what's called exagunation, which means pulling out all the blood um, or with, um, letting the blood drain. If you if you do a shot, if you sh- uh, if you stun it before that, the blood does not drain properly, does not drain well, and it's a big problem because we need to get all of the blood out, as we're going to talk about. <coughs> so, um, so shechita um, requires. So shechita is very instant. It's very quick, and of course, it's going to cause all the blood to drain um, as well. Now, this five. The, what are the rules for shechita? For the shechita to be kosher, people often point out that Muslims also slaughter um, a shochet. When I studied, I studied shechita some years back. The, um, my teacher um, once mentioned that because they work in the same slaughter, they they lease out slaughterhouses, and um, they often work alongside Muslim slaughterers. They said, if you want, he told me, if you want to know what not to do, look at what the Muslims do, and they do everything that we don't do. So we have, they don't really have any laws for legislative to slaughter. We have five, there's five very important laws for slaughter. The first is there cannot be any shahiya. Shahiya means waiting. There cannot, you cannot pause for a moment. It has to be a quick back and forth uninterrupted incision. So you go forward and back, and that's it. There's no cutting hard. It's got to be forward and back, a very, very quick, sharp, a very, very quick incision. Second, the, second pro, the second rule is there cannot be any drasa. You cannot put any pressure on the knife. You cannot press the knife on the animal as you are cutting. How do you cut without pressing? The knife has to be very, very sharp. The knife is extremely sharp. How do you test how sharp the knife is? How do you know how test sharp the knife is? They used to test it on their tongues. We don't do that anymore. On their what? Tongues. No. Uh, we don't do that anymore. It's not a good idea. The way you test the knife is you actually you have uh, at the very bottom of your palm, your skin over there is very, very thick. So you touch the knife to the bottom of your palm. Right? Just, just put, touch the knife on the bottom of your palm. If you put, try it with your kitchen knife, Nothing will happen. If you have an extremely, extremely sharp, it's called a khalaf, uh, the knives that we use for shechita. If you use an extremely, extremely sharp knife and touch it to the bottom of your palm, it will start digging into your skin. It won't cut you. It will dig into your skin. You'll see a small external incision on your skin. So you see, and you actually look at a shochet's palm. If you look at the ritual soil, you look at their palms, you'll see they have lots of kind of very shallow cuts. Um, at the bottom of their palm because they test the sharpness of their knives. So, but that's how you test that it's sharp. But it's extremely, extremely sharp. The second, the third rule is chalada. The knife cannot be cut.
covered at all during the slaughter. It cannot be covered by the incision. It cannot even be covered by the hair or the wool or the feathers. The knife must be long enough that the end of the knife is always sticking out. So the knife has to be um, for, they have different sizes for different size animals. For chickens, they're about this long. For beef, they're about this long. They're big knives. Um, so, um, so the knife has to be long enough. It has to cut, as we said, in a, either a single motion or a back and forth motion, and that's it. So it has to be very, very sharp and has to be the right size. The next rule is hagrama, which means it has to be on a, the set part of the neck. It cannot be too high. It cannot be too low. It has to be exactly at the point in the center of the neck where it will cut the um, trachea, the esophagus, and the veins all in one go. And the fifth rule is called ikur. There cannot be any tearing. The knife cannot tear at all. It cannot be today. We have serrated knives. It cannot be serrated. There cannot be any bumps in it. The knife must be totally, totally smooth. Now, you could try this when you get home. You don't, the sharper the knife is, the sharper the knife is, it, the harder, it, the, sorry, the, the blunter the knife is, the harder it is to feel how smooth it is. The sharper it gets, the more you'll notice any bumps at, on the blade of the knife. And what you do is you take your nail and you'll see that Shochtim all have very long nails. You take your nail and you run your nail along the whole blade. You run your nail along the blade. And if there's a very small nick, a very, very small bump, you'll feel it with your nail. So now the hardest part of being a Shochet, the greatest skill of Shechita, is not knowing how to slaughter. Slaughtering is, slaughtering is fairly easy. I mean, you've got to practice it, but after doing it a couple hundred times, it's easy. The hardest part of shechita is sharpening your knife. And the pride of a shochet, of a ritual slaughterer, is their knife. And the shochtim, every, uh, regularly, the rabbi comes and checks their knives. Sometimes they'll spot check in the middle of Shechita. Usually every, once a week, the, all the Shechitim have to bring their knives to the rabbi. And the, the rabbi checks the knives to make sure they're sharp and they're smooth. The Shechit has to make sure, their slaughter has to make sure that, every, that the knife is very, very sharp, extremely sharp and extremely smooth. Now to do this, and I studied Shechita, is very, very difficult. Because the way you sharpen a knife is you use sharpening stones. Firstly, you need a, firstly a proper knife. Your regular kitchen knives will never get sharp and smooth enough. They just won't, the metal's not made for it. You need special knives made with specially, special, today they make knives out of steel. They once used to do iron before steel was invented. You need special knives made out of special um, metal that will be able to handle that sharpness without, um, without disintegrating. That, that, that thin, the thinness of that blade. Now, essentially, if you think about it, a blade is a V-shape, right? It's basically the, the point of a blade is a V-shape. So what you have to do is you have to sharpen both sides of a knife, and the knife is long. And you have to be able to create at the end a perfect point. So the two sides of the V have to perfectly match up. So in order to do that, you have to be able to sharpen a long knife without changing the angle. 
the angle has to remain as you move your knife up and down the up and down the sharpening the stone you have to make sure the angle doesn't change and what they do is they have three or four different types of stones that have different levels of um, of coarseness and that way you start with a with a heavier stone to be able to kind of create your original V shape and then you use um, smoother stones and smoother stones and smoother stones until you use a very, very fine stone to be able to make that perfect, perfect V shape. And the whole time, and it could take, um, it could take a shofar could spend just between, after use, could take maybe an hour each time just to, already a sharp, smooth knife, just to get it perfect, to perfect it, could take an hour. To get a knife from scratch, to set it up, could take hours and hours and hours of sharpening to get it till you're able to get that perfect, perfect V at the end and make it that perfect. And so every time the shochet slaughters an animal, before he slaughters, you have to check the sharpness and smoothness, check the smoothness of the knife. And after you slaughter, because by slaughtering, you can touch something, especially if there's, if you touch something in the, um, if there was, um, they always move, move aside the hair so that it shouldn't cover the knife. But if it touches something, the knife can become a little less smooth, can, can touch something, and you get a nick in your knife. Um, in the middle, they always have spares. And uh, before and after every slaughter, they have to check their knives. So, and they check it to make sure it's perfectly, perfectly smooth. And then every day, it gets a little, after using it a lot, it's not so sharp anymore. And they're just using it on animals. They're not even using anything hard. And every day, they <coughs> sharpen it and re-perfect it every single day. And that's the greatest skill. That's the pride of every shilchan. That's the great skill. Not the slaughtering, but the making sure that their knives are perfect. And that kind of perfect knife, it's so sharp and so smooth that when you cut with it, you're not going to feel a thing. So... So anyway, so the shochet um, uh, puts his knife, uh, slaughters the animal. He has to have then once he has his knife, the shochet then um, they uh, lift up the neck. In um, chickens, there's a way to hold the chicken in a way that you kind of you're able to slaughter it. Or in fowl, in animals, you need something to pull back the neck. They usually have contraptions that pull back the neck. You slaughter it, and now the. F- um, the first thing that you have to do is the animal's blood must be drained. Um, uh, exagunation, um, which is the draining of the blood. And this is done, the way you do it is you have to hold the animal upside down. For fowl, either the shofar, if the shofar was doing one by one, the shofar would simply hold the fowl upside down until it drained. Um, it's easy, or um, they would put them in cones with that had a um, that had a, a open bottom. Today, it's all commercialized anyway. Um, for animals, you have to lift up. You have a contraption that lifts up the foot feet of the the hind feet of the animal to allow it to hang and to allow all of the blood to drain. When you do that, all the blood in the arteries are is all going to come out. Um, the blood will, the heart continues beating, and the blood will all drain out in the arteries. You're only left with blood inside the small veins. So did you just say you have, you have to slaughter the animal while it's upside down? No. They slaughter the animal, you pick up the head. 
you have to pick up the head to slaughter the animal. You have to stretch the neck to slaughter the animal. Um, but then after slaughter, they pick up the animal and lift it upside down to drain the... Drain the um. This is where your meat comes from. Um, they always... I mean, it, legally, you have to drain the blood also today. Yes? Can you kosher meat that's not... No, no, because it has to firstly have been slaughtered properly. Secondly, the, 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 if it was stunned, it was not slaughtered properly. Secondly, with all the rules, even if it was slaughtered, um, if they didn't slaughter it, with, if there was a nick in the knife, the animal's no good. Sometimes the shochet can slaughter it, and after the slaughter, find a nick in the knife. If you find a nick in the knife after the slaughter, even though it was good before the slaughter, animal's not kosher. They do it all wrong. They don't have sharp knives or smooth knives. They don't make sure they do it at the right spot. They don't make sure to do a single back and forth motion. They, they don't do it the way we do. Well, what if they do? Why is it called They have their own rules. But, I mean, they eat, a lot of them will eat kosher, but we won't eat theirs. Yeah, we also have a number of more. It's, there's a lot more rules. We're, we're just starting. This is, there's a lot more. I don't want to take the conversation off track, but uh, it seems like, all, like most of these rules are revolve around uh, preventing the suffering of the animal. Um, I know that there's been a lot of discussion about this new technology of cultured meat, meat that's grown in a, in a lab, uh, and that certainly prevents the suffering of the animals. So I'd like to hear your, your thoughts It's a very good that. question. I mean, there's a lot of debates about the health of that, about the, um, how wise it would be to eat that kind of stuff. Um, but from a strict halachic perspective, the laws of slaughtering would only be for real animals. would not okay. be for micro in a lab. You would not have that problem. Yes? Just to mention, uh, in halal, the only thing that they do is the, the imam prays Right. We do a blessing before slaughter. Not we're not blessing the animal. We do before every mitzvah, like before you light candles or before you put on the fill. And every time you do a mitzvah, you make a blessing first. Shechita slaughter is a bless is a mitzvah. So before doing it, we make a blessing, thanking God for the mitzvah of slaughter. So we do make a blessing before it. Yes. Um, can they anesthetize the animal Sorry. No, because then the blood won't drain. If you stun the animal, um, the blood doesn't start. The blood slows down. Doesn't start. It's not moving. The heart's not pumping. Um, if the heart's not pumping, it's not going to drain. And also, it, the the slit is so that um, giving the animal a shot is also going to cause pain to the animal, right? It's also painful to give a shot. The shechita is very very quick. The brain's dead within moments. Now, what does happen, and I've seen shechita before, the animal continues moving afterwards. Um, the animal continues moving, could even get up and they've um, released videos of this to try to counter shechita. But the animal could even get up and move around because, um, because even once the head is severed, the um, muscles still, there's muscle spasms. So the animal could even get up and start moving, um, but it's dead. It doesn't feel anything. Yes, and then we'll move on. Where, Go ahead. Where is the uh, kosher uh, meat? Besides going to Pico. <laughs> Trader Joe's sells a lot of kosher meat. Someone actually told me that they wanted to get a... Um, you told me. Glad kosher brisket. And she got glad kosher brisket at Trader Joe's. We'd have to call in advance. And yes, it's to good to know. Back, but, wow. Wow. but Trader Joe's up like La Brea. And, you know, they oh, have yeah. lots of kosher meat. 
how do you, so, how do, how do we know if it's kosher? Well, there'll, there'll be a kosher certification on it. Today, everything's certified kosher. Okay. Yes, you don't go to the shokhan anymore. You can buy it in the stores. At Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's, I think, is not going to be carrying Empire anymore. Really? Oh, no. So, so the animal Ralph's here hasn't carried for a while. So the, so the blood is drained. The blood has to be drained. And the reason why the blood has to be drained is because we're not allowed to eat blood. We're going to have a process later of draining the blood from the the blood from the veins. But the blood in the veins is a very small amount of the total blood in the body. Most of the blood is in the arteries. Most of the blood is drained right after the slaughter. The only way to get that blood out is to drain it. There's no other way to get that. If you don't get that blood out, the animal is going to be later, be later be full of blood and it's going to be impossible to get it out later. Now, the next stage is bedika, or checking the animal. The Torah tells us that if the animal has any health problem with its organs or with its bones, um, that renders the animal non-kosher. And we actually have a long list of about a hundred or so possible problems that could go wrong with the animal that can render the animal not kosher. Now, we're not required to check for each one because most of them are rare. We do, though, have to check the lungs. The lungs need to be checked. So the bodek is somebody whose job it is to check the animal. Um, sometimes the shofet, the slaughterer, will double as a bodek. Um, often it's a separate individual. Their job is to check the animal. So the bodek sticks the ha- their hands into the incision in the neck. And this is a little dirty because you get a little blood on your arm. Um, you, stick it all, you stick your arm all the way in, down until you feel the outside of the lungs. And then he runs his hands over the outside of the lungs to feel if they are smooth. If the animals are smooth, if the lungs are smooth, the animal is kosher. If the lungs are not smooth, if there's a place where there may be a hole in the lungs, you have to test to see if there's any hole in the lungs. The way they do that is they cut out the lungs. They have a pump. They pump up the lung. Then they put the lung inside a bowl of water. And if it bubbles, you know there's a hole in the lung. So that's the way we've always tested to see if there are holes. If there's no hole in the lung. So if there are bumps on the lung, if there are like scar tissue on the lung, um, then the lung is considered, then there's a debate as to whether the animal is kosher or not. Sephardic Jews won't eat it. Many Ashkenazic Jews don't eat it. Um, and it's, not, it's called non-glat. Glat is a Yiddish word, smooth. It's non-smooth. Um, today, most Jews won't eat, um, glat, won't eat non-glat. And would rather, because there's a big debate as to whether it's kosher or not, and rather we try to make sure that the lungs were smooth and there was no problem, there's no scar tissue even on the lungs. Now, depending on where you are, um, it's often hard to get glut. In mo- the United States, I think about one in two animals are not, the lungs are not smooth, have, are not healthy. Um, a lot has to do with the climate. In better climates in South America, where the best meat comes from, um, it's hard to get South American meat in the United States, but most of the world eats South American meat. Um, South American meat is much better meat in general. And over there, a much larger percentage of the lungs are smooth. 
So I'm, I'm confused by something. So if the lungs being smooth makes it glot, when is when does it have to be glot versus it's just kosher, or is it just not? The only glot? difference between glot kosher and regular kosher in Europe, in Northern Europe, a lot of it has to do with the cold climate. The colder the climate, the more the more just like people, right? The more we struggle with um, viruses, so do the animals. So um, the more problems they're going to have with their lungs, the colder the climate. So in very in northern Europe, the very cold climates, we had a lot of very hard time finding glut meats. Um, in northern Europe, about one in ten animals are non-glut, are fully are glut. So most animals are not glut. So in northern Europe, we used to eat non-glut. Here in the United States, for a number of reasons, we've um, been much more. We've been able to procure glut without a problem, and so here most meat that's produced is glut. Glut means that the lungs were smooth. So if you see glut for anything other than meat, it's it's a myth. Glut is only for meat. Um, <laughs> so most meat in the United States is glut. All meat in Israel today is glut. All meat produced in South America today is glut. In Europe, still in Northern Europe, in Russia or um, Eastern Europe, there's now Jewish communities there, um, they, they struggle still with glut. I was once at a shechita. I once um, helped out with a shechita in, um, in Lithuania at one point um, when I, uh, in my early, many years ago. And um, we did, I think, I forget how many animals, and we kept one after the next after the next. And they weren't glut. It's very hard to find glut there. So what do they do with those animals? Sorry? The animals that they found find In Europe, it was a big problem because non-Jews would buy it at a big discount. Today, um, where Jews don't have, are not at a disadvantage anymore, we're able to sell it. We usually, we're able to sell it at, at, cost, at cost price, so we don't usually lose very much besides the shochen people's time. But other than that, we don't lose very much. Um, so, so anyway, so, so that's how, so, so, that's, so the meat must be, the lungs have to be checked. Um, but Sephardic Jews, because they lived in warmer climates, Sephardic Jews were always careful not to eat, to eat glut. And they even have always had a higher level of glut than even Ashkenazic Jews were ever careful about. So then after that, the animal is then cut. But before the animal can be eaten, there are a number of parts of the animal that we're not allowed to eat. Firstly, there are a number of types of fats that we're not allowed to eat. All of the heavy, this animal, the animal has two types of fats. There's thin fats or soft fats, and then there's the heavy fats. Most of the heavy fats are over the inner organs um, near where the stomach is, in the center of the animal. Uh, that's where most of the heavy fats are, but a number of organs actually have membranes of heavy fats around them. All those heavy fats must be removed before we're able to eat yeah, before we're able to eat anything. Are those heavy fats called the brown fats? I don't know what the English name for them is. So those heavy fats, most of them are easy to take out. Some of them are harder because they are around different organs and we have, or around different parts of the animal and we have to, they have to be surgically removed from the animal by hand, each animal. In addition, the Torah forbids us from eating the sciatic nerve, the Gid Hanoshe. The sciatic nerve starts at the bottom of the spine and winds its way through the hind legs. Cutting out the sciatic nerve is a very, very long, tedious process. 
Once upon a time, we didn't want to get rid of any meat we could. They would cut out all the, most of the forbidden fats are in the hind of the animal. We used to cut out all the forbidden fats. We used to cut out all of the, um, sciat- the sciatic nerve. Today, most animals are produced commercially. Commercial production, having someone surgically remove every different parts of the animal is not cost effective, right? If they're running surgical production with dozens of, you know, many shochtim and many others, and, you know, some of these places they could run, I think, 30 animals in an hour. Um, if, you're running, if you're running commercial production, it's not cost effective to have people sitting there for an hour, two-hour job surgically removing the parts of the animal. So today they cut out in, in the United States with commercial kosher meat, they cut the hinds of the animal and they just sell it for non-kosher meat. No, it's not used for kosher meat at all. You can still get it non-commercially. And um, actually the store of Western kosher that makes meat will do, it's very expensive because it's got to be made privately um, without non-commercially. Uh, but you can get kosher hind parts of the animal. But people want to know why you can't get kosher flame and young. That's why, um, because we don't sell, the generally stores won't sell the kosher or hind parts of the animal unless it's pre-ordered special. They do, they'll do a special slaughter. Um, so, but they still they are still, even in the parts that we do eat, there are still parts that have to be cut out. And there are what they call, um, the Hebrew word for it is nikur, and um, they, they have people, or Menaker is the person who does it, people, skilled butchers that surgically remove those parts of the animal. The next stage in removing the animal, the next stage in, the, in pre- preparing the meat was still not ready. Next, the animal has to be cut up and the blood has to be removed. So for most pieces of meat, the process of removing the blood is as follows. It has to be cut into pieces, smaller pieces, and then the fowl could be, um, could, could, the blood could be removed whole. First, it has to be soaked in water for a half hour. So you put it in water to soften up the meat, and the meat softens up, gets soaked for a half hour. Then next, you have to cover, cover the, uh, the piece of meat in heavy, thick salt, very coarse salt, called kosher salt. So when you go to the store, you'll see there's a thing on the shelf called kosher salt. What's kosher salt? Is other salt non-kosher? No, all salt comes from minerals. It's all kosher. Kosher salt means that it's extra coarse salt, extra heavy salt. It's actually a lot healthier for you. Uh, My wife cooks mostly with kosher salt because it's much healthier. But um, the, the kosher salt is just very thick salt that's used in the kosher process to drain the meat from to drain the blood from the meat. So you use this coarse this salt. And they used to sell in the stores because everyone used to do it at home. They, you, and then you have to put it on top of, a, um, top of a grate or something that will let the blood drip down into a sink or into something below, to a bowl below it. And you, um, you let it sit in the salt for an hour. It has to sit in this heavy salt for an hour. What happens is the salt... Um, sucks all the liquid out of the meat. So all the blood moves into, because uh, will move naturally into the salt and will come out of the meat. At the end, after the hour process, after the hour salt processing, at the end, then we, uh, then you have to rinse the meat three times from the bloody salt now that's around the meat. 
When you're finished, you have a piece of meat that has virtually no blood in it. It's impossible to get everything out, but that once you've done that, you've done the job. That's enough. So um, you, it's got virtually no blood in it, and you've mostly gotten the salt out, although I've never had non-kosher meat, but apparently kosher meat is much saltier. Um, although I'm sure non-kosher meat is also much bloodier because it's not drained to start with properly and the blood in the arteries and then the, they don't salt it um, the way we do to get the meat out. Now you have your piece of kosher meat. That's a, that's a lot of pieces of beef to cut up and salt, isn't it? I mean, that's... So today it's all commercialized. If you go to a commercial slaughtering plant, and I would, we went as kids, I had a teacher who was also a shochet, we went as teenagers to um, slaughtering houses. He used to take us um, you know, to see it. Um, it's a great experience for kids to see where their food comes from. I, for adults too. Um, you've got to have a little stomach to be able to handle it. But it's, you know what? That's what you're eating. Someone's preparing it. It's good to know where it comes from. It's good to experience it, even if your stomach churns a little bit. Today it's heavily commercialized. Today they have machines. It goes onto the conveyor belt. The machines cut it up. They do everything for you. They even have, for the pieces of meat, uh, uh, it's amazing. It goes onto, it kind of goes onto a hook, and then it kind of runs on a, it, it runs on a... Um, conveyor belt. Uh, sorry? Conveyor. It runs on a conveyor belt for an hour, where it just essentially goes in circles, until at the end of the conveyor belt, it sat on it for an hour. And it goes into a... Um, it goes into a pool of water that um, it kind of slowly gets turned through this pool that it takes a half. Everything's, everything's automated today. Um, back in the day, our grandmothers used to sit and do this at home themselves. Um, they used to take it to the shofar. The shofar used to check it. If they had a question, they would go to the rabbi whether the lung was good. Um, but we don't do that. We don't need to do that anymore. It's all commercialized today. It's all... <coughs> Sorry? Is it a blade that cuts the animal? No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Any, that's anything. Yeah. Well, now it's kosher. You can do whatever you want with it. I mean, you can't mix it with milk, but it's other than that, it's kosher. Yes? You know, um, I grew up with all of these things that you're talking about. My mother did the kosher in the salt, uh, salt and everything. And my grandfather was a shokat, and we lived together, and uh, he was always killing the kitchen. Ditch, Chicken. Chickens. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, once or twice he did a sheep, and... Uh, I was really traumatized. I was his favorite uh, grandchild, so just walking around in the yard and stuff. And uh, but but I remember the sharpness. I remember the the, the skill that it took. Um, but it was it, it was traumatizing, especially with the sheep, not the chickens. I was used to the chickens, mm -hmm. uh, but the sheep was like, oh my god, mom, mom came out. So you eat meat today? I eat meat. You eat meat today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, my. Yeah, I think it's good. Even if you don't eat meat, it's still good to see where it comes from. It's good yeah. to see the process. It's good to know how our food... I would tell you the same is also for other things. I mean, for... Uh, you know, we don't know where our bread comes from, how bread's produced anymore, or wine my kids just experience. I mean, everything. We don't know where it comes from anymore because we now we're, we're urban dwellers and um, we go to the store and we buy everything ready-made for us. But there's a process. And it's important to know where it comes from. Yeah. 
So it's important to know that I, we, we gave this class today because it's all part of Judaism. It's important to know, although most of us don't experience it, um, it's important to know the process. Uh, perhaps it's also good to know why kosher meat costs double the price. Um, so you see now all the stages that it takes to produce kosher meat. Uh, there's also, though, some life lessons in this process. Um, the care, the reason why we do shkita, again, ultimately it's a chok, we don't really have a reason, but our sages do say that this is the most painless way to kill an animal. Um, one of the basic values in Judaism, we have seven basic values for humanity, is not being cruel to animals, very important. Um, but there's also, um, there's also other important lessons. We all have... Um, we could call it an animal inside of us. A part of us that wants to do all sorts of negative things, things that aren't good for ourselves. We actually have a, we actually have a Hebrew term for it. We call it the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. People often ask, are people naturally good? Are people naturally bad? Or are they neutral? So the Jewish answer to that is none of the above. We believe that every person has two sides to them. We have a Yetzer Tov, a good inclination that wants us to do the right thing and is always pushing us to do the right thing. We also have a Yetzer Hara, an evil inclination that wants us to do bad things and is always pushing us to do bad things. And our lives are therefore a constant struggle. So every good person has that evil inclination pushing them to do bad. So don't feel bad, even though you're a good person, that sometimes you're driven to do something wrong. And for that matter, every bad person also has a Yetzer Tov, a good inclination, pushing them to do the right thing, pushing them to do good things, which is why sometimes bad people do good things as well. And often bad people feel guilt. The Talmud says wicked people live with guilt. So, and often they live with a certain, they feel, they feel a certain guilt. So, um, so we need to, we need to be able to slaughter the negative side um, or be able to process, not slaughter, but process, prepare that negative side within us. We need to be able to work with it, not just not listen to it, but we need to know how to work with it. And it really, it's a very long process of preparation. We have to, firstly, we have this almost obsession with certain things. We get obsessed, we get almost addicted. We feel, I need to do this, I need to do that. That's something we have to cut out, we have to learn to slaughter, we have to learn to cut the drive, the obsession with certain negative things. But it's not just enough to cut it. We also have to clean it, we have to prepare it, we have to soak it, we have to salt it. We have to go through preparation, we have to go through, we have to refine ourselves, develop our <coughs> negative traits develop the things that we want to do, the ne the, the, develop the negativity, to be able to train ourselves. And a very important part of Judaism is character development. And we've done a number of classes on this, and we're actually now in a period called the Svirat Omer, the counting of the Omer, 49-day period between Passover and Shavuot, where every day we work on character development. And it's a very important part of Judaism where, that we can learn a lesson from the preparation of meat, that we really, we have animals inside us, and we have to recognize we each have those animals, but we really have to work on developing those animals, refining them, fixing them, um, making them better, making them focused on more, on better things. Get your negative side to also enjoy good things, and not be so obsessed with negative things, and actually develop those character traits as well. So we do learn important lessons um, from this preparation of meat. Thank <laughs> you.